Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. I've worn board shorts my entire life, and they've come a long way since my youth. They used to be stiff and short, then when I was a teenager they were way too long and stretchy, where they'd actually wrap around and immobilize your knee. And if you were to rely on someone to design a pair of board shorts, you know what the best qualification would be for that person? Living on the North Shore of Oahu and professionally surfing from the age of eight, winning a couple world titles, five triple crowns, and Eddie, let's say, all of those things are pretty great testing experiences for a pair of board shorts. So from the materials to the construction panel to the way that the board shorts are manufactured, John John Florence has actually built his brand around the board short because it's the only necessary piece of equipment other than a surfboard. And so you owe it to yourself to try a pair. John's known for putting in eight hour sessions. So if it works for him on the North Shore, it'll work for you too. FlorenceMarineX.com is where you can grab a pair, save 20% off your first order through the end of June with our promo code, which is the word SURF. And this discount applies to the entire order, not just board shorts. So add some other stuff in there, but do not miss the board shorts. FlorenceMarineX.com, promo code SURF for 20% off. And Slow Tide has just hit their hot streak of collaborations. From Clark Little to Laser Wolf, they have done some really cool ones over the years. Uh, Keith Herring and Ren Spooner are among my favorites, but they also just launched a Cassia Midor collection, where in keeping with Cassia's ethos, the products are made from 100% post-consumer waste, primarily plastic water bottles. The fabrics have been tested and certified to be free of harmful chemicals and don't contain any allergic substances. Both of Cassia's offerings are made from that quick-dry fabric that is lightweight, but it packs down tiny and still absorbs four times its weight in water. It also dries two times faster than a standard cotton towel, so it's a no-brainer. She's got a full-size towel and a changing poncho also available in that quick-dry material. They're available on slowtide.co. Our promo code saves you 20% off, and it is Surf Splendor Podcast, all one word, on slowtide.co. Save time and space with that quick dry material and save money with our promo code Surf Splendor Podcast on slowtide.co. Thank you and enjoy. OG Dick Metz is back at a spry 92 years old. We're calling this episode part five in our series. We released parts one through four in December of 2019, episodes 300 through 304. 
So here we are, three years later, and overdue, honestly. People have been asking for more Mets uh, ever since then, but in the interim, a documentary has actually been made about Dick. It's entitled Birth of an Endless Summer, and it covers some of the stories that Dick told here on the podcast, but then the filmmakers take Dick back to South Africa to retrace his steps from 60 years ago, reliving and then visiting with friends that he made on the original trip, which then informed and inspired Bruce Brown to make The Endless Summer. The film is made by Laguna Beach's Emmy-nominated commercial filmmaker Richard Yelland and is currently touring the festival circuit. It's screening this weekend at our beloved Florida Surf Film Festival in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. And so if you're within driving distance of New Smyrna, I highly recommend that you see the film there. Dick Metz will also be in attendance all weekend long. And for those of you who are not familiar with Dick, in addition to what I already mentioned about him, he is a central figure for all of the Southern California surf industry, from the inception of polyurethane foam, to board building and sales, to clothing manufacturing and sales. It is absolutely impossible to measure his influence in the surf world because he's so intricately woven into its fabric. But that's what we're trying to do through these conversations here. So through the first four parts, we only made it chronologically to the early 60s. Today we make it to about 1965. So Dick and I have decided that we actually need to get together every couple of months to do another episode until we make it all the way to the current day. So there's lots more to look forward to with Dick. But for today, without further ado, it is my great honor to get out of his way and let him talk. So my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy the venerable yet humble Dick Metz. Dick Metz, welcome back to the program. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you. Um, so after we published our last four-part series, it was, I believe it was the first month of 2019. Okay. So we would have recorded in 18 and then published in 19. Uh, the number one thing that listeners said as feedback was, that guy needs a documentary made about him. <laughs> they're like he we first of all in the four parts you and i only got to like the first decade of your sort right. of kind of experience so there's decades beyond that we should probably cover but they're like man it doesn't it's great but there needs to be a documentary and now we have a documentary well i'm happy to do it to me every time we do this is an, just one little more chapter in the history of this sport that i love so much so i'm I'm happy to do them. I just pump them out. Well, how did the documentary come about? Uh, well, Richard Yalen, do you know him? I don't. Well, he's a Laguna guy. I went to high school there. Uh, I was way ahead of him in high school, but uh, he's made years ago, he called me. Um, and do you know about Nick Gabadon, the black surfer in Malibu that was killed? Well, he was doing a video about his life, and but there was not much history. So I came down here, and I knew Nick, and there's hardly anybody alive that still knows him. And I didn't know him well, but I'd 
used to surf at Malibu all the time and met him there with with Joe Quigg and Buzzy Trent and all those guys. So uh, we, I helped him do that. Uh, it was a, a little 15-minute video that he made, and it was called 12 Miles North, uh, paddling from the Black Beach in Santa Monica to Malibu. And he borrowed one of our boards and filmed it with a board of the 50s and uh, made a nice movie. So I got to know him a little bit, and I guess during that time, we talked a little bit about the endless summer and and how that happened, and so that must have been six or seven, eight years ago. He came back and said, "I've done some research, and I'd like to take you back to South Africa and do a, a, a adventure documentary on how that all came about." Wow! So he and I and the cameraman, and a couple of guys, flew down there and uh, stayed with John Whitmore's daughter whom I've known since she was six years old. And Petta was great to see them and stay with them. And then we went up the coast when I discovered, or was, I don't know, discovered it, but went to Jay Bay and and Cape St. Francis. And I'd hitchhiked up there and uh, John Whitmore had gotten me a ride to go. I was going to Durban. And he said, well, there's got to be surf. And I said, for sure, there's got to be surf along the way. And he said, I'll get you a ride with a salesman and he can drop you off wherever he wants. So it was about a month after we talked about it. John didn't want me to go. You know, I was in love with his wife's little sister, mm-hmm. Patty, if you remember that part of the story. And I could have easily stayed there, but they didn't have any product to make surfboards with, you know, fo- foam and fiberglass and resin and so forth. And I said, John, the best thing is for me to go back to California, continue my trip, get some product for you, and send it back. So eventually, a year and a half later, I got back here, filled a container with resin blanks, and the blanks he had just, when I left, I was working for Hobie and Grubby making the blanks, but we hadn't perfected them, and they had big holes and pock marks in them. But by the time I got back, it was because of the temperature and the, the uh, a different variation during the day of the temperature was varying the chemical components that were pouring the blanks in and they figured that out so when i got home i filled a container sent it to john and then i once it got to cape town i jumped on an airplane and flew back so i was really in cape town twice before bruce ever got there uh in making the end of the summer wow and i went down and showed him how to make surfboards he was a used car salesman right you know and he didn't know you know about fiberglass and resin and foam and all that so I went down, but this time I was already in Hawaii with the Hobie stores, and I couldn't stay long. So I stayed a month, I think, and showed him how to make surfboards and came on home. And, of course, then he went on to make Whitmore surfboards and was the biggest surfboard maker in, in all of Africa. And then I got him the Maury Boogie distributorship and um, Surfer Magazine and and he did Bruce's other films, and you know he just broadened the base. And he was the kind of the Hobie of South Africa, if you will, mm-hmm. um, making stuff. And later on, became the Hobie Cat rep for all of Africa. And uh, and he came here and met Hobie and all the guys here. So he had a, a friendship developed that way, and uh, that's what started the whole thing. So uh, Yalen, Richard Yalen, wanted to go back and and say, see how this was really done. So we really went from Cape Town up the coast 
to J-Bay and people that I had surfed with then, we interviewed them and I hadn't seen a bunch of them for years, even though I've been back there 12 times since. But I didn't always go to J-Bay. I stayed in Cape Town and, you know, went to other places surfing closer by. And uh, because of the political things when I was there at first, it was uncomfortable kind of traveling around sometimes. So anyway, we went back and made the movie, and Richard did a good job, I think, with editing it and getting it on the market. Showed it at Newport Film Festival first, then the Laguna Film Festival, and that was fun because it was both my hometown and Richard's hometown Mm -hmm. and knew all the people that came. Then we went to Santa Barbara, and it's shown two or three other places that I didn't go to, and now we're doing the Florida one. So it seems to have some momentum and uh, some interest. And so I'm excited to go down and get some questions and answers. Um, I'm curious. I'm wondering if that was the first container of Clark foam that was shipped abroad. Well, it certainly could have been. Uh, That'd be an interesting historical note. He, Grubby, probably shipped them to Hawaii first okay. as far as actually shipping them any distance. Yeah. I'm just guessing that uh, because, ba- and backing up. So I came home from the, my trip, the first trip. I left in 58, got back in 61, and I went to Hawaii and opened the Hobie store on Kapilani Boulevard. And not long after that, uh, Phil Edwards and Bosco left Hobie's and wanted to come to Hawaii and work for me. So then I got blanks from Grubby to, uh, I've set up a shaping shop um, on, um, what's the name of the little island right in Honolulu, Honolulu uh, Sand Island. And they came over and made boards. And then I set Dick Brewer up making Hobie guns in Holly Eva. And so we had blanks then. Mm-hmm. So that might've been first. I just don't remember. Well, that wasn't international though. No, so I'm you're thinking right, the first, international, yeah. but certainly afar in that regard. Yeah, yeah, that's fast. I mean, if they had just figured out the problems with the foam, then it would stand Yeah, the reason. foam was solid by right. then. Right, um, How I, I often think uh, Gordon Clark would be one of my ideal podcast guests as well. I, I don't know if we can pull that one off. That's what everybody says. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I talk to Grubby all the time. But, do you? Well, I say all the time, but we're good friends, certainly, and... We talk, you know, every month or so. Oh, okay. And, you know, he's running this ranch or has this ranch, and I've been there several times. It's 90,000 acres. It's so big we ride dirt bikes for three days and never get off the ranch. Wow. I mean, you know, it's a big hunk of ground, and it's in the hills, and he has two herds of sheep, or did. He told me he's gotten out of the sheep business now, and cattle. And he he really, you know, Grubby's, he, he loves the challenge, and he's really good on computers and writing software. So he bought a new John Deere tractor that runs by itself on a computer. What? <laughs> and it goes plowing back and forth. You don't have to drive it. See, he is the most fascinating person to me. This is why I want to interview him. Sure. Everybody that I've ever talked to who's worked with him uh, or knew him tells me new details that I'm like, that is so fascinating. Um I knew somebody explained the sheep farming thing that he got into as 
he did in that world what he did with Clark Foam in surfing. Like he got involved with it and just completely took over and uh, was as, you know, prolific at that as he was with building boards or foam. Well, he, you know, he's a kind of a guy that gets on one subject and he works on it 24-7. And he sent me a picture not long ago of a belt buckle. Uh, and I forgot, I forgot what it said, but, you know, it's like a... a they, they do in rodeos. Or it's a big old belt buckle that said something like farmer of the year for Oregon or Crazy. something like that. And uh, so he was proud of that, obviously, because here he came from the beach and doesn't know right. doodly squat about farming. But, you know, Grubby's a, a student. He gets into it. He reads about it and thinks about it. And, and he doesn't have anything else to do. He loves those kind of challenges. You know, Fascinating. He, he's not a guy that wants to go to a bunch of parties and, and just hang out. You know, he wants to do stuff. Um, what's your version of the story of why he closed Clark foam and left? I've heard a lot of different versions. <laughs> well, um, you know, the, the, in my mind, the main reason was because when I worked with him, we had a Hobie actually started. It was a little shop in Laguna Canyon. And that was our secret spot where the foam was first developed. And when Hobie got disappointed, Hobie envisioned him selling foam to uh, Velzi and other manufacturers. Well, that was not going to happen, at least in that time. And Velzi in particular advertised foam as, uh, what do you call, flexi flyers. And he was putting it down in his advertisement and was still using balsa wood. And Velzi was just the opposite of Hobie and Grubby and his kind of thinking forward type stuff. And so, but balsa wood was getting harder to come by. The volume of surfboards was going up and the amount of balsa wood, good balsa from Bolivia was limited. And Hobie realized he had to get other material to make that, to take satisfy the supply side. So that's what got him started more early on the foam. Anyway, mm -hmm. Velzi wouldn't have anything to do with it. And so Hobie felt that uh, by getting rid of the foam company, that it could go off and do its own. So he gave it to Grubby. Grubby didn't buy it. It was a gift. Wow. And But the, the way I remember it uh, was that Hobie said something to Grubby, I'll give you the company. You can call it Clark Foam or whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> but... You've got to sell me the blanks a dollar cheaper. Right. And so he did. Grubby stuck to the, the agreement. Uh, but, you know, every time he raised the price, he could raise it whenever he wanted. Yeah. So <laughs> we got him a buck cheaper. But right. <laughs> he was still doing okay on those. But considering all the boards Hobie built. Right. He saved a ton of money. A ton of money. So there's some trade-offs there. So it wasn't free. And, you know, but Grubby didn't write a check at least as far as I know. Um, Do you remember what it was called before they called it Clark? Well, we just, it was so secret up until then. Okay. So that uh, we were making it, uh, and Hobie would, he, he had a chemistry set at home, and Hobie was playing with it, and he had a bucket of ice cream containers, and every night he'd make it up a different concoction, right on it with a grease pen, the date and the components, and then he'd put it on the roof of the Hobie shop, which was a flat roof, if you remember, the first shop in Dana Point. And every day, 
it was the roof was covered with these containers, and some of them would bubble up, some would turn brown, some would stay hard, you know, whatever. And Hobie would go up with a clipboard and write down what they were doing on a daily basis. Mm. And at that time, it was just Hobie's foam, you know. We did, mm -hmm. it, but it wasn't really being sold. But Hobie did sell those blanks, but they had big pock marks in them. And we didn't realize the temperature and the humidity during the day was altering the components. And he was doing kids, it at night. So what did yeah. we know? Right. And uh, so we, but the foam blanks were expensive for then, and he couldn't afford to throw them out. So these holes, or pock marks, we call them, we filled with Bondo or yeah, other yeah, yeah. things. And that's why all the first ones were called uh, Easter egg boards. There were three colors, white, a light blue, and a kind of a reddish pink color okay and that was pigment but pigment's expensive and it's not paint it's added to the resin and it's heavier so it was doing what just the opposite what do we wanted to happen it was costing more and being heavier but we had to cover up these big blotchy holes mm -hmm. uh and that's so those first blanks uh were really hobie blanks i guess okay uh, and and then i don't re see i was gone what happened is when in 58, Hobie had set up that shop, or maybe it was even 57, and I was patching surfboards for Hobie uh, and lifeguarding at the daytime, tenor bar at night, you know, doing yeah. whatever you had to do. And Grubby started getting more into the blanks. And that's so sometime about the time before I left, Hobie made the deal with Grubby because I went with Grubby. I was the first employee he ever had. And I poured blanks in a bucket that we used. We had an old uh, drill press from like high school. You put a bit in it, and you'd hold the bucket with your left hand. The right hand, you'd have that wheel that would drop. But instead of a drill bit, we'd put an egg beater in it. Okay. And that stirred it up. But it didn't stir it up completely. Yeah. There was stuff around the edges. So when I ran to the mold to pour it out, it wasn't churned up like it could have been or should have been. Right. And that's partly why the pock holes yeah. developed too. Yeah. <clears throat> so then I left on the trip in 58, and by the time I came home, Grubby had figured it out okay. about the humidity and the temperature. So I got back in 61, and everything was clean now. Gotcha. So then we got rid of the pigment and the Easter egg boards, and, mm -hmm. and you can make a clear foam board. And then... Uh, <clears throat> You were starting by telling me why he closed the business in 2005 or your version of why he closed the business in 2005. Well, I th that's right. We talked and I got sidelined. I think Grubby, what happened is, so in order to get a bigger shop, because where we were in the canyon was not big enough, there was a dirt road, Crown Valley Parkway was a dirt road, and there was no Mission Viejo. There was no town. We used to ride motorcycles all out in there. From the Hobie shop in Dana Point, you'd ride them across the fields all the way over there. There were just no houses. There was no anything. So Grubby built an industrial, you know, slab-up building. You know, I don't know how big it was, but it had to be 15,000 square feet or 20,000. And there was no, there was nothing around it. It was just out in the middle of Orange County. And Grubby put it in a good place. It was away from everybody. But over the years, obviously, it developed. And it ended up being almost downtown in Mission Viejo. And the powers that be over the years, you know, said, here we got a chemical plant right in the middle of the downtown city. 
And they just bugged him so much about more filters and more equipment to protect the environment and all that, which Grubby did, but it never was enough. You mm-hmm. know, it was just an ongoing, this is my feeling of it. When I was with Grubby, I never worked there again because I lived in Hawaii for the next 25 years. So I was back and forth and we were always good friends, but it just seemed like, you know, the fire department would come and do an inspection and, and then the environmentalist and whomever. And it was just a constant uh, beat up and more expense. And, and it was obvious that there's homes and apartments and you know where it was. I do. Yeah. It's all residential. And now it's, you know, apartments all over the place. Yeah. So, you know, I can understand why the city, but at the same time, it was there long before the city was established. Yeah. But, you know, you can't have it in the middle of the city down the road. So uh, they just made it miserable. And by then, uh, I mean, Grubby, I'm 92. Grubby's, I think, three years younger than I am. Okay. So I think Grubby's now 89, close to it. Um, so how long ago was that? 15 years ago. Uh, so he was 75 okay. in that general area. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I don't need this anymore. Yeah. I, and I, that's similar to the versions that I've heard as well. And the other detail was that he seemed to be pretty, um, uh, angry about it. Like in his, or in a sense, he felt like, look, not only was I here first, I'm largely responsible for helping develop a lot of this. And then in the, on the industry side, I'm largely responsible for developing the entire surfboard industry as we know it. And yet everybody is always pointing fingers of blame at me, trying to dip their hands into my pockets for things. I think there was, I read a story about um, employees who tried to file a lawsuit against him for working with toxic materials. Uh So some third party agency came in and actually did a study and they found out that there was a higher incidence of that type of cancer or whatever it was in the general public than there was in Clark employees. So the case got dismissed. So every step of the way, Gordon just felt like you guys should be thanking me. Why are you constantly attacking me? Well, I think you're absolutely right in what you said. Uh, He did hurt his feelings and, you know, he had worked for years doing it there first and all the things you said were absolutely true. And the industry, you know, he did a great job. Uh, he not only made the blanks, but what he made it so easy for the other manufacturers, he glued up all their boards to the rocker specifications right. that they wanted, and he delivered it the next day. I mean, it was a great service. And the other blank makers really couldn't do that. And what happened, the old guys like Hobie and Velzi, they knew how to glue up all that stuff. But the young shapers and stuff that came on, they didn't know how to get the rockers in there right. And so Grubby took all that out of their hands and made it easy for them, delivered the next day, and there was no competition, really. Grubby owned that market. And I think the other thing was he kept a lot of that stuff proprietary. Uh-huh. So those other companies that then tried to get into the market had to figure it out on they their own. Them's own. Yeah. And they didn't know how to figure right, it out. Right, right, right. So it was, it was just too bad. Uh, well, Grubby did a great job overall, and it just the the times, you know, the culture changes, attitudes change, and certainly being right downtown in a, a town that wasn't there that became, I don't know how big Mission Viejo, but it's got to be a couple hundred thousand anyway. Oh, yeah. And um, did he surf? 
Did, did he surf? Dave Gordon. I've never heard anything about him being oh, a surfer. Oh, yeah. No, he surfed, and I've surfed with him. Oh, okay. No, uh, he, Grubby and I'm another one. We weren't great swimmers, but we, he was in the Army. See, I was older. I got out of the Korean War. I was in the Army, too. got discharged before they did. So Walter Hoffman and Grubby were both in the military at the Korean War in Hawaii. Walter ended up being a lifeguard, and Grubby was up at Schofield Barracks. Mm. And so when I got discharged, I came to Hawaii and lived with them. And we, you know, surfed after they got off duty. They could live, uh, you know, not on the barracks. So both Walter and I and, and Grubby, we lived in a house in Lilio Kalani and in uh, North Shore. Well, we were in Makaha, Hawaii, not we had a place. So depending on the time of the year, we'd move around. But no, Grubby surfed. Okay, we were at sunset one day. And I don't know if he remembers this, but I can remember this. A guy named Billy Ming and I and Grubby were surfing at sunset. And, you know, we were young. In those days, the boards we had, there were balsa boards. Uh, we didn't have a deep fin on them. I went over there in 1951. And, you know, the equipment was the state of the art for the time, right. but not what it is today, certainly. And we were surfing. Sunset kept getting bigger and bigger. And it was raining real hard that day. And the current comes down. There was a stream that comes out only on a rainy day. And right at the, where the waves kind of crash right there by the houses. And it creates a current. And it goes right along the beach. And then it goes straight out where, where the river empties into it and f- makes it flow out. And coming in from sunset on those kind of days, it was only like this rip was about 10 feet wide. But even on a surfboard, to get across it was really hard. And Grubby didn't get across, and he got washed out uh, on that rip and took him straight out. And we called the helicopter at Kaneohe and picked him up. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, I'm sure he remembers that. How could you <laughs> well, forget? I think he wants to forget it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember Ming and I were on the beach, and we were afraid to get in the water and help him yeah. because we were no better off than he was. <laughs> and so, uh, anyway. They I, actually plucked him out of the ocean? Yeah, they took him wow. out. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, before we pushed record, we were talking about the Florida Surf Film Festival where your film is screening next weekend. That's right. It's a two-night festival one night's your film the next night is the jerry lopez documentary that i believe patagonia is producing okay um what was your introduction to jerry lopez well (laughs) i'm trying to think i don't remember the first time but jerry as far as i remember went to punahou uh when i opened the hobie star on kapilani boulevard it was the first retail surf shop anywhere there wasn't any in California that just had surfboards. And they weren't made there. It was purely a retail store. Hobie made them all in Dana Point, shipped them over to me, and I just had a store there. So every kid on the island, uh, you know, in those days, you had to go to Joe Kitchens or Inner Island and put an order in, and maybe two months later you might get a board. And here you could walk in, buy it today, and be in the water in 10 minutes. Wow. And it changed the whole dynamics of, of retail and surfing in Oahu. And so I don't remember when Randy Rarick and Jerry Lopez and Jack Shipley was older and he was working for me uh, as a clerk selling stuff and a good salesman. And uh, I 
well, there's a lot of things that happen. So I ran the store totally myself early on. And so all those kids would come down. Uh, and we always, once a week, I would get boards flown over from Hobie. And usually 10 or 15 boards. I was selling 15, 20 boards a week. And so uh, I'd write up orders. They were custom made to my specifications and colors. But I knew kind of what the public wanted. So I would just keep ordering boards. And here was... 50 brand new boards, different sizes, shapes, colors, whatever. And so they would come on Thursday. They'd bring a truck from, uh, um, what was the, Air, Airborne Freight, would deliver it right in the front of the shop. There was a little lawn. And so the truck would come by, and they were all wrapped up in a truck, and they'd unload it right there on the lawn. And all the high school kids and were, were anxious to see them, and we unwrapped them right there on the lawn, and they came in a plastic container, so I'd open the box, hold the box up, and it would slide out in its plastic uh, container out onto the lawn. Oh, I want this one. I know they, I want that one. And they'd start arguing, and I'm out there. The first day, I got 17 boards the first day, and I sold them all in 15 minutes. And there, I didn't even know how much they were. Hobie had a worksheet on each board <clears throat> that said who had glassed it, who had shaped it, um, and then it had a nose block or panels on it or, you know, a T-band or whatever it had, and that would be $2 extra or 4 bucks or whatever it was. And I didn't know the number on the blank was what I was paying for it or that was what the retail price was. And so the first day was a disaster because they read the number on there, yeah. and they were stuffing money in my shirt pocket as I'm unwrapping these things and real, literally fighting over which one. And I sold all 17 of them. I never got any of them in the store. And I called Obi up and I said, they're all gone. You got to send me some more boards. And he said, well, I, got, I don't have any more for you for another couple of weeks. But he said, what I'll do, he was selling them to Sears, uh, Roebuck, and they had, not in every uh, store, but in the ones that were appropriate locations. So he said, I'll steal some from that order that's going out to Sears. So they had ordered like 50 boards or something. And so he took 10 out of there, I think, or okay. sent me the next day. So I got more boards right away. <clears throat> but um, the boards then were like $85, $95 retail. Um, and I, I didn't get paid. Some of them I, I didn't charge, you know, because the number on the thing was really the cost number. Yeah. not. And so right away, Hobie had to raise the price ten dollars and when he raised it then dewey weber and bing and hansen all the rest of the guys could raise their price ten bucks too because basically the, the boards they were selling were too cheap you know they're all made in a garage and most of the guys didn't have um, any cost there weren't rent and insurance and all the rest of the overhead so this made it kind of started to level the playing field where guys could actually do it legitimately and not make it their dad's garage, mm -hmm. borrowing their dad's money to, right. to make a board. So there's margin in there. Not very much, but right. a little bit. Yeah, it's funny how the business is still pretty similar. Yeah, it hadn't changed much. It really does. But you they do get uh, more. So in those days, it was about 10%, uh, you know, $10 on, let's say, 100 Okay. Uh, but now what a board's like 1500 they're not getting 150 bucks. No, that's true. 
So the margin you know, has gone up, but it's bit. more dollars, just not a percentage wise. Yeah. So anyway, ask about Jerry. I don't remember specifically, but he was interested and he would hang around. He wasn't just coming by a board and run off. You know, he would hang out there and because he knew Jack Shipley, I don't know quite how that relation started. Uh, and Randy work started, uh, I, I, in the back of the store, these guys were now digging their boards a little bit, and there was no material. You know, you couldn't. So the first thing I ended up selling, besides surfboards, was what I called a patch kit. And I put, uh, I bought little half pints cans, empty cans, filled those up with resin, little bottles of Catalyst, and a piece of, of uh, cloth, and put it in a bag. And for two bucks or whatever it was, you could buy a patch kit. So all of a sudden we had some other items to sell and we had wax. So before that, I just had surfboards. That's all it was. Mm. And then as, as time went on, the biggest thing that I did was I asked Hobie one day, I said, send me over a dozen Hobie t-shirts. And they said, Hobie surfboards, the logo on it, Dana Point, California. And so I pinned that up on the wall and I sold a couple of them. And then it dawned on me, nobody wants to buy in Honolulu, Dana Point. So I called Hobie. I said, I'm going to take these your logo down to a Chinese screener and have Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh, he said, go do whatever you want. He used to tell me, if it's good for you, it'll be good for me. That was his favorite thing. He would never argue or discussed a deal. I don't even think we ever shook hands. It wow. was just, Hobie always just said, if it's going to be good for you, it'll be good for me because I'm buying product from him. The more I bought, obviously, the better. Mm -hmm. So I put Honolulu and Hawaii, and that's what put me in the clothing business. I sold hundreds of those because that was a trademark that you'd been to Hawaii. So if you could walk down the beach at Huntington or Laguna or wherever, and you had a Hobie Honolulu Hawaii T-shirt on and a pair of M-Knee trunks, mm -hmm. you had a certain class distinction from all the other guys that had never been to Hawaii. Right away, guys say, oh, that guy's been to Hawaii. And they gave you a whole different status on that's the beach. Fascinating. Um, you said that's how you got into the clothing business. Well, then we had, we had I, not discussed that at all in the previous four episodes. <laughs> well, I, I started and chapter. owned Surfline Hawaii and Jams, and it's still a going concern today. Uh, but I, I didn't. I financed it all. But Dave Rockland, um, Senior Dave, not Baby Dave, uh, came over from. Santa Monica. And see, when I went to school in Santa Barbara from Laguna, there was no freeways. I'd drive from Laguna to Hermosa and I'd stay with a guy, a friend of mine that had a bar there called the Poop Deck in Hermosa Beach, uh, Howard Bugby. I'd spend a night there, surf at Hermosa Beach. Next morning, I'd go up to Malibu and surf with Quig and Kivlin and Dave Rockland and Buzzy and those guys. And Finally, two days later, I'd get to Santa Barbara. And that's what always happened when I'd come to Laguna. So Quig and Kivlin, and then I skied with Matt Kivlin. He was a good skier. Mm. And I started skiing real early in Aspen and Mammoth and Sun Valley and all those places. So I got to know Matt really well. And so that's how I got to know all those Santa Monica and L.A. guys. But Dave Rockland, got, and he and I got along great. And he was working in L.A., just got out of the Marine Corps and wanted to come to Hawaii and said, God, because uh, I then went to Hawaii after that. And he said, you got to get me a job over there. So I couldn't get him a job. I could hardly get myself a job. 
And uh, he came over, married Kainui, who was Rabbit Kekai's first wife, you know that. Um, and they had two daughters together. So Dave adopted the two daughters, and then he had three kids himself from Kainui. Um, Pua is the youngest one. Mark and uh, the girl's name is, uh, damn, I can't think of it right now. Anyway, um, so Dave got a job working for the Navy as a civilian uh, at Pearl Harbor, but he had to put a coat and tie on and go to work every day. And every day at 4 o'clock, he'd get off, come by the Hobie shop, and say, get me out of this suit. I got. Can't you put me to work in the Hobie shop? I said, Dave, you got kids to, to support. I'm getting $10 a surfboard. Yeah. It hardly pays my rent let alone supporting you. <clears throat> so that was always in the back of my mind because here's a, a good, knowledgeable, good guy, a good friend. And so the next step in all of this was um, had the Hobie shop was booming, selling 15, 20 boards a week, and the word got out to, to Velzy and Bing and Greg Knoll and Dewey and Hanson, all the rest of them. So that year, that Christmas, was the first Makaha contest with Jim McKay announcing on the spot live from Makaha, Waianae. And so all the board manufacturers wanted to come over, and they were all going to come over and watch the contest and, and see about what was going on in Hawaii because the word was out. There's surf over there, water's warm, tourists are going. <laughs> Excuse me. we got to get in on the action, and the Hobie store is killing us over <laughs> there. So... Uh, they all came over, and the week before, I of course, talking to Hobie, the Hobie team was coming over, Munoz, and I don't remember, Corky Carroll, and I think Doyle rode for us then. Uh, and so they're all flying over for the contest, and <clears throat> Rockland and I, he would pick me up at 4. I'd close the store if it was nobody around, and we'd go surf for an hour or two, and then I'd go down to his house. Canoe had cooked dinner. She had already fed the kids, and Dave and I had eaten. Canoe would always be sewing on this little round dining room table. And Dave would come home. We were wet, and, well, you dry off pretty quick, but I was just in my trunks. But Dave would always drop his trunks and put on an old pair of pajamas that Canoe had cut off at the knee and made into shorts. And they were striped flannels, you know, with a little tie, how those pajamas when we were kids. So he would put those on, and they were loose and comfortable, but they were made out of flannels, and it wasn't the best material. So we're sitting there having dinner one day. I mean, this went on for every day almost, and <clears throat> I'd buy some of the food. It was usually rice and beans and hamburger meat or, you know, something simple. And uh, Dave said, God, you got to get me out of this Navy job. And what, I said, well, what can we do, Dave? I said, you know, this T-shirts are selling the Hobie T-shirts are going off the shelves. I'm selling a lot of those, but that's not enough. Let's do. Some, there's some other clothes, and in those days, trunks were not. There were no trunk makers. There was McGregor, and they made what they called a pool set. You'd have a matching trunk and a little top. Well, surfers weren't going for that, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, M. Nee, who made the original M. Nee's, he had long since gone, mm. and. Um, Hang 10 hadn't started yet. And so uh, you, there were tailors that you could go to in Honolulu and have them make a pair of trunks, outrigger canoe type trunks. Um, so we kept talking. Dave's real creative. I'm not very creative. I'm good with numbers, but 
not you know like Hobie. He, Hobie creates stuff. I want to go run it, but I can't. I couldn't create anything. So Dave was kind of like that, and so we're thinking and eating and having a beer or whatever. And uh, he started drawing on a napkin, a paper napkin, a little loops for a wave. And then we're thinking, well, what kind of a name could we call a company? How about Surfing, Surfline? Surfline's good. And we'll have this little scallop meeting waves. So we settled on Surfline. And he said, Kanui, take these uh, jammas that I've got on and go down to, uh, uh, what's the name? I'm trying to think of the supplier uh, in Honolulu and buy a, a yard or two of Aloha print instead of having it striped flannels, get a cotton, a light cotton and Aloha print and make me a pair of these. And I said, that's a good idea. Those will be loose and we can put those on after, after uh, surfing. And so the next day she bought a couple of yards and made one of these. And I said, those bitching, I can sell those in the Hobie shop. So she made three or four pair, and I put them there, and I sold them right away. And we called them jams, and, and so Dave made a neat label, the big J A M S, uh, Surfline Hawaii, and that was our first product. So we had just made a few, and here comes the Hobie team and all the guys for the Makaha contest. And I said, Dave Munoz and all Karki Carroll are all coming over for the contest. Let's put them in these jams. And so Kinui stayed up all night to make about four more pair of these things. And so when they came in, I had always, no, nobody had a car then. You know, it was a different lifestyle. And so I would drive out the airport and you, you didn't, there was no, uh, you didn't land in an airport and the, the tubes that you walk out, you landed, you walked down the stairs on the tarmac and mm -hmm. came over and got your bag and got a car and away you went. Then I picked up and they all stayed with me. They didn't have, nobody had any money. So Munoz and Karki and I can't remember who else was on it then. Uh, Joey Cabell was probably. But anyway, uh, so they came over and I went to my house. And I said, the next morning, they wanted to go out and surf, of course. So I said, hey, try these new trunks. And Mickey and those guys, they laughed. They said, God, you want us to wear these big baggy things? And I said, well, look at it. They're bright and neat. And they'll spot you in the contest a lot better than they will in a pair of old blue trunks. And so, yeah, that's right. And so they all put them on. And so when the Macaw contest started, here were these guys in these trunks, you know, not the whole group, but five or six or seven of them. And they stood out like crazy. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted a pair of jams. And I told, I said to Rockland, it looks like you can quit that Navy job because yeah. I think we got a job going. Wow. That's how Surfline and jams started. Incredible. But that um, was even better. And this is the fun part. It won't take a second. So, you know, we were, Kanui was, she was our source. So she's sitting at home with a little hand sewing machine making these things, you know, like half a dozen a day. And we put them in the Hobie shop and I could sell them right away. So I said, we got to get a contractor to start yeah, pumping these things out. And Dave said, well, I'll find one. I'll, go, I'll quit and we'll go down to Honolulu and find a Chinaman that can start making these things. And so... It got in Life magazine with a contest, and in Jim McKay, and it was on TV or whatever. And about a week later, the team had gone home, and Dave and I were outrigger club members, and we were sitting there having a, a couple of beers or something after surfing one day. And the phone rings, and and the bartender said, "Dick, it's for you." And I, you know, I'm there every day. You know, you know everybody. 
And I answered the phone and said, who's this? And they said, this is Lord and Taylor. We're a big store in New York City, and we just saw the TV on the Macaw contest, and we're told that you have the jams company. We want to order some. And I said, well, that's no problem. We got a ton of them here. We're so busy, I don't know if we can fill your order right away. And I just started bullshitting off the top of my head. And <laughs> so they said, well, we'll just send you an open order. And I said, well, we don't take orders without checks as they're selling to, but we had no money right. to go buy the yardage. Yeah. And so they said, we'll send you a check tomorrow. So about two days later, they told me at the office when I came in at Outrigger Canoe Club, I got a mail and I opened it up as a $10,000 check from Lord and Taylor with whatever you can send us. Wow. And so Rockland and I went out in the bar and we bought a round for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great time, but that was our opening order from Lord and Taylor. I mean, that's the entire investment you needed to run oh, the business. Oh, yeah, probably, we, had, right? we had no money. Yeah. And, uh, but that 10 grand was a ton of money then. And uh, it was like open order. We could just send them when and how we got them. Poor Canoey's making stuff. And uh, then they, uh, you know, we got a contractor and started making them. And then right away, of course, Rockland's head is going crazy. So we got to make jams. Then we do shirts, Aloha shirts. And we didn't, <clears throat> we reversed the print. You know how originally they were the bright side. Mm -hmm. Rockland turned them inside out. And it was just subtle enough that that really was a selling point. And all of a sudden, we're in the clothing business. We had the, well, Hang 10 started about the same time. So Duke Boyd, but he was making just trunks. Uh, he copied the Emney trunk and took it to a dressmaker in Long Beach called Doris Moore, and she knocked off Emney trunks, and that was the Hang 10 trunk. But they, they were like us. They didn't have any money either, so they were just making trunks and selling to surf shops, and we were just making the shirts and the jams because we didn't have enough to do. We want to broaden the line, but we didn't have the money and yeah. we didn't have the credit to go down and make it really happen overnight. So it was a gradual thing. And the same with Duke. I mean, Duke's a real good friend, and I, he and I talk about it. We were both kind of, then they started making a knit shirt where they put the hang 10 on, and that was a hot number. So, you know, each one of us were yeah. kind of going off in a little different, but at the same time, we were the two first beach man, clothing manufacturers that were really made for surf, for beach guys. And what did you decide to do as far as developing either your own stores or selling through other retailers like Lord & Taylor? Well, you know, at this time, so now it's 1965, uh, about, I don't remember exactly, I'd already opened my second store in Lahaina, Maui, on Front Street there. I have a picture, you've seen it, I'm sure, where it was as a dirt floor, and I put a Hobie sign out in front, and it was right across the street from the Pioneer Hotel on Front Street, and it was all dirt then. And um, I had a gal named Claire Smith, was born in Maui, but went to UCLA and grew up in Santa Monica in college surfing. She was a real good surfer for a gal at that time. And uh, actually, I no, I don't have it in my wallet, uh, but I'll show you the picture. And at the first picture I took... Claire is holding a little baby in her arms in front of this Hobie shop that had a dirt floor, but I put a carpet on top of the dirt, so it looked a little more high class. And she ran the store for me while I was in Honolulu running the main store. And so <clears throat> it was obvious there was energy and more opportunities. And Hobie called me up one day and said, 
Uh, and of course, he'd been to Hawaii and he'd seen Waikiki and the enthusiasm. And he said, I'm in Miami and, you know, Florida's got white sandy beaches, warm water. It's just like Waikiki. You got to come down here and open a store. So I get on an airplane, fly from Honolulu to L.A. to, to Miami. And we drove. I opened three stores in, my, uh, in Florida, Jacksonville, Daytona and Miami and went back to Honolulu. Well, that was the biggest mistake of my life yeah. because right away, I mean, I wasn't gone five days and I'm getting phone calls. Well, what, how would I do this? And what about that? And there's not enough profit for me to fly from Honolulu back and forth, rent a motel room, rent a car. So right away, I said, this isn't going to work. So I sold the stores. See, I, had the, I was the only one that had the rights to use the name Hobie. I didn't pay Hobie a royalty. We didn't have a contract. There was none of that. And like I say, not even a handshake. Go do what you want to do. If it works for you, it'll work for me. He must have told me that a thousand times. And so I closed. I didn't close them. I sold those stores to local Florida guys, but they had to call it another name. They couldn't call it Hobie. So I retreated from the multi-store thing temporarily. But right away, I said, the thing to do is to have them close together so I can go to all of them in a day. And so right away, I come to Laguna where I grew up, opened one on Forest Avenue, one in Corona Del Mar, and then Hobie wanted me to take over the Dana Point one because he had moved what was the factory, then became the retail store, and he moved the factory down to Capo Beach. So I had three stores here, then in San Diego, Santa Cruz, Santa Monica, and those I could, they're close enough, and then I moved back from Honolulu to California to run those stores, but then... Hawaii kept growing, and we did uh, open another store in front of Kimo's restaurant. Uh, and the guy that owns Kimo's, Rob Tebow, was a close friend of mine. And he called me up. He said, you got to put a Hobie store at the entrance to Kimo's. Well, he said, you know, the store is brand new. It's right here. You'll do great. So I go back to Maui and open that store. And then I had to have a warehouse because I had too much. The stores are so little, square footage is so expensive, you can't store stuff. So I had a warehouse about half a mile away. So then I had, if you do a good job, and I learned this pretty quickly too, if you do a good job, whether it's in Lahaina or Laguna, other property owners that own other stores, they see who's doing well, who pays their rent. And so all of a sudden, you get other locations offered to you. In Laguna, I had four locations not Hobie stores, but similar. I called one Laguna Beach Company, uh, Laguna uh, Bikini Company, and but I could service them all. They were all within a block of each other, and I owned them all, but they weren't Hobie stores, but they sold similar things that Hobie sold. Gotcha. So they're branded differently. They're branded. And, but you're not buying the, the real estate. You're just renting yeah, the space. Well, at that time I was. I, gotcha. I mean, I took me a while to get into that part of it. Gotcha. But in Hawaii, in Maui, I, Front Street became so hot, and I didn't want competition to come right across the street from me. So I opened a store right across the street from Chemo's, another one down the street. I had 11 stores in Maui. That's a fascinating business model. Because <laughs> I know um, beer companies do that, right? Yeah. Like Budweiser knows there's going to be 50 different types of beer on the shelf. Sure. Customers won't just, like if Budweiser just put all Budweiser bottles there, 
customers don't just want Budweiser. Yeah, they want but a choice. they realize we should just own those choices. Right. And so they buy all those small Other brands, labels. and now the entire shelf is owned by Budweiser, sure. essentially. Well, that's what I ended up doing. I had the one warehouse. I had to stock the chemo store three times a day. It was only 500 feet. Uh, it was, you know, it's about the size of this library, a little bit bigger, and it did over a million dollars. Wow. And in those Back days, in the 60s. And in those days, a pair of trunks was 15 bucks, you know, not 50 like right. they are now. Right. So it took a lot longer to get to a million. <laughs> well, and we're selling a lot of product. Yeah. And so, you know, you'd have three sizes of each one, maybe different colors. So I have a Volkswagen bus and come from the warehouse three times a day just to fill up what we'd sold. Incredible. So I'm wondering at what point did Hobie, I mean, his, the reason why he didn't have a contract with you was if you're doing well, you're selling more surfboards, which means he's selling more surfboards. Right. But you found that the most profitable thing in the business was the clothing. You had to have the clothing. So, so at what, did he ever figure that out and regret not having that contract or wish that he was a part of that clothing business? Well, if he did, he never said so. Okay. Uh, and I mean, we were really good friends. I mean, I don't think anybody spent as much time. I spent more time with him, a couple of his wives, you know, he's married six times. So, uh, he wasn't with them very long, but, <laughs> but Hobie and I are really good friends. He trusted me. I trusted him that, you know, the culture, yeah. the mentality of, of the way we grew up in that time period Having grown up in the Depression uh, gave you a different mentality, I think. The way your parents had to work to just put food on the table. Uh, it was your, your learning curve as a kid uh, was honesty and integrity is the most important thing you have in, in your head and your body. And you've got to utilize that and not lose that. And so there was a different... Now I have the feeling, you know, you make a deal and, you know, you can yeah. talk your way around it and things break down and change. But in those days it didn't. Good. You know, you said, I'm going to do it. You, you did it. Good. And it was just a different mentality. Uh, lifeguards, I look back when I grew up in Laguna, I, when I was a little kid, when I say a little kid, 10 years old or so, uh, lifeguards were Peanuts, Larson, and Hevs, and uh Herb Elke and all the guys that were ahead of me in school. And this is a good lesson. I like to tell this story. Um, bottles, Coke bottles were two cents deposit. And so people, girls, guys, whoever, be down on the beach on a blanket having a Coke. And then they'd go to the water and get wet, surf, not board surf, but body surf or whatever. And the empty bottles would be there. And so the lifeguards wanted to, make extra money, but for a lifeguard that's 19 or 20 years old, for a, a girl that's 16 isn't as cute, a little kid that's 10 years old and flopping in the sand and laughing and doesn't know what he's doing really, uh, could get away with stuff. And so they would send me, there's two girls that would finish those Cokes, go over and see if you can get those bottles. And so to me, to make the lifeguards happy, let me sit on the lifeguard tower and you get extra little goodies yeah. from that so that was a fun game i played and learned to go over and get coke bottles and bring them back the guards would turn them in and then they'd go buy a hamburger or something mm -hmm. and they'd give me something once in a while so that was a learning lesson one day these two gals and they had already promised me said when i'm finished with the cokes you can have the bottles and they went down to the beach 
And so they're empty. They're empty, and I'd been running around. So I saw they were empty. I went and grabbed the bottles. I'd already said I could have them. And on the towel, there was like a nickel and a couple of pennies. I don't think there was 10 cents. And I scooped that up and went back real proud, gave the Coke bottles to the lifeguards, and I said, I got this eight cents or whatever it was. And they said, you never take money. The bottles you asked for and they were given to you, money, you never touch that. Take that back. They gave, I thought I was going to get a big pat on the back. They just nailed me. Said, you never touch the money. Take that back and put it back there on the towel before they miss it. And I ran right back, and I was almost crying. I mean, they, yeah. they really hit him. But those messages coming from a lifeguard that you admired and respected, made they set the tone. They set the, cul the culture that you live by. That's what they live by, and they instilled in that in you, and that's the way you lived. Yeah. And that was a strong motivation. Good. Really. So. Yeah, that's, imp that's um, not enough lessons like that being taught nowadays. I yeah, feel. yeah, that's good. lost science it or really, whatever. Totally. Realwatersports.com, of course, our retail partner, uh, and it just kind of gets better and better. I have board builder friends who I've interviewed on this program who said that they've reached out to Real Water Sports because of us talking about them here, and now they're supplying boards for them as well. So look at that small world. Keep talking about community. Here it is. So realwatersports.com, huge inventory, 1,500 board inventory of all the names that you know and love uh, in a wide variety of sizes. That's the other key. So they have what you need right now on realwatersports.com, and they can ship it to you for one flat low fee guaranteed to show up blemish free, which by the way, a lot of retailers don't offer that. You might leave the retail shop, walk out, drop it in the parking lot, boom, blemished. You didn't even get it home yet, not guaranteed. This shows up on your doorstep, blemish-free, guaranteed. Realwatersports.com, thanks for providing such an epic resource for our listeners. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
just in the interest of time, I'm going to jump forward four decades. <laughs> uh, we're sitting in the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, which I was remiss to not ask you about last time we had this recorded podcast. But um, what is the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center and how did it come to be? Well, uh, after 40, 50 years running Hobie shops and being in the surf business all my life, uh, you know, old wooden redwood boards, guys that I grew up with that had those in their garage. Uh, I was at the Dana Point store one day, and a friend of mine came by, and it was a pickup truck, and had this old redwood sticking in the back of his truck, and he came in to get a bar of wax or something, and I think it was, I'm trying to think who it was, but I think it was uh, Rollo Beck, but I can't remember for sure. And I said, what are you doing with the whole wooden board? You taking it to the dump? He said, as a matter of fact, I am. My wife's tired of looking at the damn thing. It keeps falling down, and, uh, you know, it doesn't have any value, so I'm going to take it to the dump. Well, the dump, it was another, it was in uh, San Juan, and he had to drive that much further. I said, well, I'll save you a drive. I'll put it up in the rafters here. So he said, sure, why not? So... That started, this is way before anybody collected any boards. So I just thought they were neat. I had a redwood that's out in the museum here. So I knew what they were and I wrote them. That's how I learned to surf on an old redwood. So we had a high ceiling and I kept just gradually getting boards that were being thrown away. There was no value. Nobody would give you a nickel for them. So I ended up with boards and they could see them up in the ceiling. And then when I opened a store in the cannery store in Maui, uh, it had a real high ceiling, and I needed something above the clothes and the wetsuits to fill the wall. So I started putting boards and collecting them in Hawaii. So I knew Duke, and I said, Duke, you got a couple old boards? Let me, why don't you give them to me? I'll put them in the Hobie store. So I used to surf with Duke. He was a beach boy, you know. He wasn't. I look back, I could have had a thousand pictures sitting there with Duke or have him sign his autograph. But, you know, when you're with a guy every day, yeah. You don't think about it. So do you have any pictures? Yeah, I have about three of me okay. with Duke. Good. But I look back and I think, God almighty, why didn't I get a hundred of them? Right. <laughs> but be that as it may, I got boards from Duke and other beach boys. Uh, and then when I had the Hobie shop, Steamboat and Rabbit and all those guys were on the Hobie surf team. And so those weren't Redwoods, but as they would trade them, go ride them for a year, then they'd trade them in for a new board, then I would keep that board or I could sell it. It was Hobie's, my, you know, we had the money in it, but I would just keep them. Okay, this was Rabbit Kai's board. And so I put it up on the walls and, you know, nobody was collecting them then. And people come in, oh, those are pretty neat. I mean, guys used to serve that old Redwood. And so people, then I put little signs on them, said whose they were and what year it was. And, and again, so more people are looking. I thought, well, there's some interest there. And so I was over on the mainland, and this is way later. I, I must have had uh, 100 or 150 boards, but 200, I don't know how many. I had them in all the Hobie shops. And it was just a good place to store them. And I said, well, Danny Bronner, who is a glasser for Hobie, is putting on a surfboard, a surfboard auction. What the hell is that? So it was in Costa Mesa. And I go to this auction, and guys are spending money for these old boards. And not a lot, but like 100 bucks. And I thought, well, that's crazy. I'm getting them for free. Who in their right mind would pay 100 bucks? Well, guys want to put them in their house and talk about them. And so I thought, well, this is pretty neat. Uh, so all of a sudden, I had... 
a bunch of boards that had no value, I figured, well, they're worth a hundred bucks a piece. And so that just went from there, as you know. And so I started collecting all these things. And when I sold the Hobie stores, see, I couldn't sell the name. That was part of, and I don't know, there again, there was no contract, but I, it was Hobie's name. You know, I can't let anybody else use that. And I protected it. So I sold all the stores and they turned into lightning bolt stores and other stores, Honolulu Bay stores, guys named them whatever they wanted to name them, but they were the old Hobie stores, but I didn't sell them the surfboards. And I put those in a container and brought them to the mainland and I just had them in storage. And then I went to an auction in San Diego and the guys were really spending money. Then the Price is 500 bucks and even a thousand for a couple of them. I thought, my God, this is crazy. And there was one, two guys that were doing most of the buying of the good boards. And so after the auction, they got in line to pay for the boards they had just bought. And I get in line with this one guy right behind him. I tap him on the shoulder and I said, Who are you? Are you paying money for these boards? Are you crazy? And he said, Well, I'm Spencer Crowell. And so that's my introduction to Spencer. And Fernando was there and Paul Nade. And these are the three guys that had money and knowledge. Well, Spencer didn't have, he learned about it then, but he was interested in it. And so the three of them were bidding against each other for the good boards. I couldn't believe it. You know, all of a sudden they're paying $2,000 for a surfboard. And so I started talking to Spencer and we became pretty good friends and, um, he had a little warehouse in Costa Mesa, and I said, I got all these boards from Hawaii. I got to find a home for them. And so I said, well, bring them over to my warehouse. So I took them over there, and we at least unwrapped them and got them out and had a little showing one night there. And I said, Spencer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a foundation. And so I had an office, not even an office. I rented a desk in another guy's office in Laguna, and I bought a computer, and I didn't know how to work a computer. I said, I got to get all the history, because I knew who owned them and who wrote them, and they were all well-known guys, but I need to get that down. And I didn't even know how to work a computer. So I went up to Huntington Beach Museum, and I was looking around there, and I met Barry Hahn. He was a volunteer at Huntington Beach, so I started talking to him, and I said, you know how to start a computer? And he said, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. And I said, well, how much do you get paid? He said, oh, I'm a volunteer. They don't pay me. I said, I'll give you 10 bucks an hour. Come down and show me how to start a computer. I'll give you double what they're paying you. <laughs> so that's how I, then I incorporated. It took me three years to get a 5013C uh, you know, tax deduction and a foundation because I didn't, I could do it with a lawyer and probably a couple of weeks, but it was $10,000. I remember I talked to a lawyer. Oh, yeah, it cost about ten grand to do it all. I said, I'll figure it out. So I got the, all the right foundation numbers and tax IDs and stuff. And uh, then Spencer had this little office, so we started. And I had all the old boards. I had the wooden boards and the early foam balsa boards and that kind of thing. But he was more, he was a younger than I am by far. And he was more interested in, in lightning bolts and uh, twin fins and more modern boards. And he bought some wood ones too. But that was, you buy your era that you kind of surf in. And I was behind the old red one. So anyway, our, our combination made it pretty good. So I started the foundation in 1999. And um, I think Spencer's dad had a real estate or 
They, they bought this building and made a down payment on it. It was a speculative warehouse building, and Pesman was right across the street, and Surfer was up the street. So I said, Spencer, I will pay off this building. By then, I had sold some property and had money, so I paid the building off, so we owned it free and clear, and uh, here we are. Amazing. And obviously, the collections have grown far beyond surfboards. We're sitting in the library right now, and there's every issue of Surfer Magazine, every issue of Surfing Magazine, I'm sure uh, other publications as well. You have a huge archive of uh, imagery. Posters, letters. Films. Uh, films. Um, and I just got these boxes right here, just came in from the East Coast, uh, boxes of books that we don't even know what they are yet. The archivist we have here hasn't had a chance. They just came, three of them, four of them came today. Other ones came yesterday. So people donate. What happened, David, is once I, and this is funny too, kind of. So, you know, when we grew up, life was so different. And it was during the Depression and money was not what it is today. And so I started this thing uh, in 1999, as I said, and it was, I think we moved in here in 04. It might be off a little bit. Uh, and so to raise money, cause to, to do all the stuff we needed to do, uh, I wanted to get members. So I decided to get 100 founding partners. And right away I called up Hobie and Grubby and everybody I knew, um, <clears throat> and Walter and uh, and so Walter right away was always known as being really tight with money. And he said, I'm not giving you a cent till I see your check. How much did you give? So I gave, a, 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 at that time, I gave $100,000. I'd sold some property. So I showed him a check to Surfing Heritage, $100,000, Dick Metz. And I said, all right, here it is, Walter. I want to see hundred grand." So Walter and Flippy Hoffman donated hundred grand once they saw my check. Wow. But they wouldn't do it until they saw my check. Wow. They weren't going to do it on their own. But if they saw I did it, then they were in. That's amazing. <laughs> so that was a good story. And then I called up Rennie Yater. All these guys were my best friends. And I said, Rennie, I know you got some Simmons. We've got one Simmons. And we need another one. And so because I donated my whole collection that they had seen over the years in all the Hobie stores and knew I had a lot of good boards. So Rennie, he had like six or seven, but they're all really good boards. So all my friends ultimately end up donating their boards or their magazine collection or their book collection, whatever it was. Uh, and that's how we started acquiring all this stuff. So we have far and away the greatest collection in the world. I mean, there's nobody that has I mean, close. It's such a resource and a gift because all of us who grew up loving surfing and accumulated all of these things, we don't need it in our garage anymore, no. but we cannot stomach the idea of throwing it away. Exactly. I've moved two or three times and lugged my magazine collections that sure. just are so heavy and cumbersome <laughs> and an eyesore. And in the amount of time that I've moved them, I've never thumbed through a single one of them, you know? Yeah, you just keep them. I just keep them. <laughs> that's right. But this is where they should go, you well, know? That's and and I, that's probably what Rennie felt like with his yeah. surfboards. Or sure, they're boards. in his garage or his bedroom. It's like they should be viewed by people. Nobody sees them. Right. And that's, that's my whole thrust. And we have... Um, you know, because of my trips to Australia and South Africa, we have uh, Safari Magazine, you know, from every country. Wow. Uh, and people come, I should show you, there's a book up there. I've had several uh, teachers, 
two professors at Exeter University in England flew over here, sat at this very table we're at for six weeks and wrote their PhD thesis here using our archives. And I let them do that for what nothing, but I want a copy of their manuscripts, which I have here in the library. Smart. And that adds to our collection. So, you know, it, this is where I'm more interested in this, the culture and the lifestyle, how surfing, you know, it had such an impact, David. You know, we started surfing, we were just living the life, and it was so different when I was a kid, uh, and we were thought of as kind of hell's angels. You let your hair grow, and you didn't, see, the, the culture was so different then. People, when I was a kid, a guy that drove a dump truck would wear a coat and tie. I mean, mm. it was formal. And even though you're doing a dirty job, you dressed properly and you lived a more proper life. There was no five-day work week. You worked six days a week. Sunday was a religious day that you took off and had one big meal, and it wasn't a recreation day. But after the war, all that changed. Servicemen coming home from the war, you know, they had been in different climates. They're not wearing a coat and tie to go drive a truck. You know, they're going to be in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. Mm -hmm. And so the culture chain, surfing has had such an impact on clothes, music, lifestyle, all the things, food that we take for granted now. And I want to be the reservoir the place where everybody can find out about that. Mm. And so we want duplicate copies of your collection of magazines. So we have one here that we let people look at. We have another collection that are all in sleeves and saved in perpetuity that nobody sees. So you need, and we, we lease out or send out, loan out to other museums. I can't tell you how many times we sent books, magazines, posters, and surfboards to Australia, to Honolulu, three times. There's plenty of surfboards there, but they don't know the history of them. So just to have a couple of old surfboards from the Rack and Waikiki in the art museum in Honolulu doesn't tell a story but ours we have them all categorized pictures of them being ridden by rabbit kekai or you know joey cabell or whomever and that gives a whole life to that board and we lend those out to other museums all over the world and so we're the the archives of uh, to me we're the archives of the surfing world um who is doing all of this work and how is it funded well, the funding is always the problem. Uh, I have given, uh, a, I don't know how much, but uh, I don't have kids to put through college. So my college funding for my kids, if I had them, has all come here. But we have fundraisers. Uh, we have memberships. Uh, we have events that we charge to come to. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a constant thing that we have to work on so we have four employees one is a trained archivist um, and we'd like to have more if we had the funding to pay for more because these books and the other stuff should get archived quicker we have thousands of pictures that surfer magazine and different magazines has given us or f photographers when they've passed away 
And we need to identify those. What happened, like in John Severson or so many of them, they took the pictures, they recognized them, they knew who they were, where they were, but they didn't write on the slide. So now the young guy that runs the magazine, it's 35 years old, he doesn't recognize Makaha. When I was there, there wasn't a building there. He doesn't recognize it because it doesn't have a couple of condominiums. 10 stories on it. So I try and identify those, but we can't do them all, and I can only do so much. So there's a lot more we should be able to do if we had more funding. Yeah. And we need grants. You know, we need the industry to help. We need bigger companies to step up that that are have an interest that we could, they could use our equipment, our stuff, and, you know, make it work for them, utilize it some way. So there's a lot of things we need to do bigger and better. Um, and so how do people become members? Easy listeners? enough. Just go to our website, stop by. Um, you know, we sign up members all the time. We love to have young guys members. Uh, yeah. So that's easy to do. It's important. Uh, all the years that I've been coming here, it's always under archived. You know, there are boxes everywhere right. waiting to be get gotten to. Uh, and then kind of beyond the archiving step everything should be available online, you know, that's because right. if somebody's a member across the sure, world, they need to look, at they that. should have access to all of this stuff. So that's the next phase. Well, we're working on that of as course. we speak yeah. this morning. I talked to a guy that's going to work on our website to enhance that where if they're a member, they can have a password and go right to that Perfect. and see the pictures like Ben Marcus. I'm sure you know, Ben, he lives in San Malibu. And so uh, we have, he's got a page of our pictures that he's working on a book right now. So that's all in the works, but it, it doesn't happen as fast as I'd like it if we had more funding. Exactly. So that's the call to that's listeners. A, yeah. is we, to fund. we need to get grants yeah. uh, and, and they're out there, but you know, it's when you don't know that business, this is all a learning curve for me and, and the employees and Linda and Barry have both been here a long time. And, you know, every day year we're learning things and contacts that we didn't have before that are helping. Um, what's the status with the Dana Point location? Is that on hold? It's on hold because, uh, you know, we're all ready to move. The, we'll keep this building. See, we're never going to have enough square footage in another location, a high traffic location. So I think this will be our archives and we'd have a pure museum at that location. But be that as it may, the plans were drawn. I have a letter from the developers about having us in the harbor with them to be the center of, of activities and events going on. And then COVID came along and obviously their purpose was to build more buildings, rent those to restaurants or uh, clothing stores or whomever and they couldn't get they couldn't lease the new buildings so they stopped got it and so they're planning to resume it hadn't started yet okay. so the first they have to build a parking structure the way it is now the parking is all done on land on one level and there's four or five parking lots so they need to be able to build other restaurants or hotels on those lots and build one parking structure that would go up three or four stories and everybody could park in one location and give them more land mm -hmm. to develop. Got it. Yeah. That was exciting before COVID when that was all oh, green lit. That, that was, was in the works. Exciting. Uh, I have two final questions for you. They're both follow-ups from the last time we recorded. Uh, did you 
reignite your romance with Patty. Because <laughs> I think that was kind of projected in the works last time we saw Well, in the movie uh, that you'll see, you know, uh, The Birth of the Endless Summer. So we went back to South Africa. I stayed with John Whitmore's uh, daughters, as I said. Uh, Patty had moved. Well, she got, you know, when this romance was going on over all these years, she married a German that had property in Namibia. And so she moved in with him. <clears throat> That's where her family started. He died. I got married here, got divorced, and that's where we always stayed connected. But here I laugh because when I met her, she was 17 and I was 32. And this romance went on. She gets married. I get married. I take my wife to stay with her and her husband. I took my mom there twice. <clears throat> then her husband dies. I get divorced. We're back you know where well, we all kept talking all the time now i go back down there on this last trip i'm 92 and she's 75 <laughs> it cracks me up i laugh every time i think about it so we're still real good friends but she's in namibia and because of the rules and the laws with real estate she owns some apartments and a couple of commercial buildings and if she leaves the country she loses the income or those properties. And that's what she lives on. So she can't as much as she'd like to come back to Cape Town. That's a different country. And she would lose that income. So she can leave for a week, but she can't leave for a month or longer. You know, I forgot what the sure. thing is. So the romance is continues uh, with Patty. She's a great gal. And we, uh, both think highly of each other, but we'll never probably end up. I've got too many things doing here. She doesn't want to live in the United States. You know, she grew up, was born and lived in Africa, and that's her home, and I understand that. And basically the same thing here. Uh, I've, I, I, could easily, I could easier stay there than she could stay here. Yeah. Uh, but it's not going to happen. i got too much to do here. Well, it's a beautiful love story. Um, Last time we recorded, I remember now, you were looking forward to seeing her again because that trip was in the works right. for the documentary. Uh -huh. And so you're like, yeah, we had mis <laughs> misaligned over the years, you know, but here's an opportunity to spend sure. time together. Um, well, she's a good one. And I would good. like to spend more time there, but good. it is the presence. Um, final question, which I don't remember asking you previously, is just, are you still surfing or when was the last time you surfed? Uh Last time I surfed was last year. Uh, I can surf. It's getting up. That's the whole problem. Yeah, you know, I have neuropathy and my feet are numb. So you don't have the sense in your feet, the balance that you once had. But I can stand up surf and paddle into a wave. Mm. But I can't paddle into a very big wave. Uh, so what it does, you keep surfing but it's at such a lower, much lower level, and you're used to surfing faster, better waves, and all of a sudden you're back to where when you were learning, and it doesn't have the, the, the enthusiasm isn't there as much as it used to be. It's, it's bouncing up. You just, the knees don't work, the joints don't work so quick, and so to pop up like you have to when you're dropping into a nice, fast wave, yeah. you can't do it. So where where'd you surf a year ago? Uh, Doheny. Oh, okay. Uh, that was a logical play. I began there. I might as well yeah. end up there. So I can still ride my motorcycle. I ride dirt bikes. And that works. Of, of the sports that I've done thoroughly and 
all my life, skiing, surfing, sailing, and riding motorcycles. The dirt bikes I can still do the best uh, because it doesn't require, you're on your knees part of the time, but you can also sit and relax. So there's not the knee strain on the motorcycle and you still have the balance and the technique that you've been yeah. doing all the time. So I look forward to riding. I have a new KTM 500 a dirt bike and uh, I ride. That's another funny story. been riding with these guys for years that were more or less my age. And when we got in the 60s, most of them kind of gave it up for mm -hmm. one reason or another. And so I started riding with their kids. And so the last 20 years I've been riding with their kids. Well, now their kids are getting older. And so last year I rode with their grandkids. Wow. And I have a picture of five of them. They're, most of them are graduates at USC. They're all big, strong kids. They're all 22, 23. And I took them for a ride and they were laughing because uh, I don't know whether I really beat them but I know the trails better than they do. Yeah, yeah. And so we, uh, we rode for about 50 miles and uh, we stopped and took this picture. And here they're all six, three or four, you know, big, strong young guys. And I had so much fun riding with them. It was really great. Uh, you haven't aged a day. And last time I saw you, I think you were 89. <laughs> so well, 90, almost 93. I'll yeah, be 93 you next aged. month. Well, I, do you I, feel? I feel I've aged. Oh, do you? Well, you know, you feel, I work out every morning and you know your body pretty well after all these years of doing the same kind of things, stretching and, and, you know, I work out with dumbbells and so forth, but I can't do really in the stretching department. And I've always been really limber, but I noticed that it's your muscles tighten up, your ligaments. I don't know what it is, but I'm not as limber today as I was a year ago. Okay. And even though I work at it, I'm right. stretching right, every right. day. It's not like I'm laying on the couch every day. Right. And but you start losing that, and that's worrisome. So I I feel I'm getting older. Do you do anything cognitively to keep stay sharp? Well, no. I just have you know I always try and eat good. Um, so I think that's important to have. Uh, I try and eat five fruits and vegetables a day. Uh, and I work out religiously, not a hard workout, but ride the bike, uh, makes my knees feel better. And um, I do in the morning, I like to watch the news and the stock market. And so I'll lay on the floor listening to that and do my stretching and, you know, sit-ups and crunches and that kind of thing. <clears throat> uh for cognitive though, you don't, do you do Sudoku puzzles or anything like that? No, just for mental thing. Just I just feel I read and, uh, I read a lot of books. I like to read all the history of, and then I, I really take on my motorcycle and, uh, camping. I go up the Lewis and Clark trail. Like I've ridden that whole thing on my motorcycle and the, where the forts were and where they captured the different Indian chiefs and all this stuff. I love American history along with surfing history. Yeah. So I pursue all that. Uh, and so my mind's active all the time. You yeah. know, I'm doing business stuff, but I don't do anything specifically for that. Yeah. And Good. I probably should. It well, wouldn't hurt. Whatever you're doing is working. <laughs> and I think it's a model to follow. Well, I'm happy. So. I just love what I'm doing. And I love seeing guys like you that are recording all this history because I think it's so important and in the future it'll be realized and enjoyed by so many people down the road so I'm happy to do it anytime awesome well thank you Dave thank you Dave
sometimes I go walking through fields where we walked long ago in the sweet used to be. And the flowers still grow, but they don't smell sweet as they did when you picked them for me. And when I think of you and the love we once knew, how I wish we could go back in time. Back in time. Do you ever think back on old memories like that? Or do I Birth of an Endless Summer is playing this Friday, June 17th, at the Florida Surf Film Festival. Saturday night, uh, they're actually screening The Yin and Yang of Jerry Lopez, which is the new Stacy Peralta documentary on Jerry. And those are the two main feature films on Friday and Saturday. But they have lots of other short films as well. They have live music by Matt Costa, drinks, food, raffles. It is an epic weekend, an epic event. So if you're anywhere near New Smyrna, go. Dick Metz will be there. And you can find imagery of Dick and a trailer for The Birth of an Endless Summer on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also leave a comment in the comment section for him. I will make sure that he sees them and shack.org, S-H-A-C-C, is the website for the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, shack.org, and that is where you can support their work. You can also sign up to support our work for five bucks a month. We're giving away an album Freewing on July 1st, and it's a thank you to our supporters. So this is Jack Freestone's new model. You can get your support in anytime before July 1st, and you will be entered to win. If you're already a supporter, of course, you're already automatically entered to win. So you can do that on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Listener support is the way that we fund this work and archive it for future generations. So thank you. And lastly, we have a YouTube version of today's episode. So share that with friends. Our show's growth is organic. It's through word of mouth. We've never advertised. But some people don't know how to access podcasts. So it's kind of a non-starter for you to share our show with them if they're never going to dig in their phone and find it. So sending them the YouTube link might actually be easier. And uh, hopefully they dig it. So thank you for doing that. And uh, Scott Bass and I are recording an episode of Spit tomorrow on Thursday. That should go out. And then Chaz Smith is still in Europe, but we are planning to record on Friday and get that published the same day. Lots to discuss on those two shows. Lots going on in the surf world. And so I look forward to that. And then I'll be back here on Surf Splendor next week. So my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. And until then, I'm encouraging you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on. Thank you, darling. I love you. <laughs>And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.